TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. What is something that we can all relate to? We're trying to communicate. It's I know it's the commercial arts, but it's really communication arts. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, illustrator Ping Zhu explains how she thinks about her profession. You want people to understand what you're making. You want people to see and make sure that it makes sense to them. If I had to describe Ping Zhu's distinctive style of illustration, I could pile on the adjectives. Painterly comes to mind, bold and colorful, funny, cute, especially her animals, striking and memorable, always. And if you don't know her by name, you're likely to have seen her work in The New Yorker, on wallpapers for Google Meet, on ads for companies like Reebok, on book covers and on illustrations inside the books themselves. Her new children's book is The Snail with the Right Heart, which was written by Maria Popova. Ping Zhu, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Ping, is it true that when you sing songs to your dogs, they run away from you? <laughs> um, I I think that's true. I think I torment them maybe a little too often. And now there's only one of them. But yes, they used to flee together. And now it's just one. <laughs> do you have a particularly bad singing voice? Or did they just not like the tunes you were picking? <laughs> I think I'm a little overbearing sometimes. Just an overly loving mother maybe. <laughs> I, I actually loved when I read that because I also do the same thing. I make up all sorts of songs. I have two cats and a dog and I make up songs for all of them and constantly sing them. My wife this morning was like, okay, let's try another tune. <laughs> so, yeah, it's weird. We kind of have such strange parts of ourselves come out when we talk to animals. I feel like there's just like this honesty and you won't be judged for it somehow. Exactly. Maybe by looks or their body language, but not by like language and other human things. True. 
True. So, Ping, I know you grew up in California in a mm-hmm. town east of Pasadena called Arcadia. Um, and I know that when you were little, you liked to play alone and make imaginary worlds. What kind of worlds were you creating? Anything from just pretending my surroundings were something else, you know, like a closet could be just this like secret lair or when you go outside and climb a tree, it's, you know, somehow more incredible, like a tree house or there's something else to it. Um, I think it was because we grew up with not too much. So the imagination was kind of where all the richness came from. And it wasn't so much of like escapism. I think it was very much out of curiosity, just natural, you know, wild imagination, wanting to make more out of a situation that didn't seem like very much. So I kept myself entertained. (laughs) Your dad came to the United States to go to college at the University of Washington in Seattle, where you were born. Mm -hmm. And you then moved to Rhode Island, where your dad earned his PhD, and then finally moved across the country to California when your dad got his job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. Now, I understand that both your parents studied meteorology. Did your mom work at JPL as well? No, she actually uh, wasn't able to continue working in meteorology when she got to the U.S. because of language barriers, and she ended up like having to also take care of us, so her career trajectory kind of changed. But for my dad, he uh, stayed at JPL for a few years and then ended up uh, switching jobs to more of like... Uh, data management, like computer engineering ends of things. Well, you've said that pursuing the arts wasn't an option for either of your parents. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why and if they could have, if they would have. Yeah, they grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution. So there was a huge limitation on personal choice, I think, during that time. And they met in college. And at the time, a lot of people were just pushed into careers or into directions that they kind of tested well in. And because my parents did well in the sciences, they that's the direction they went in. But my dad was the one who really introduced me a lot to art in a way, uh, as far as taking museums a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And my mom was the one who helped send me to art class when I was a kid. I mean, driving me and picking me up for weekend after weekend for years is no small feat either. So it was definitely, you know, something that helped with developing my interest in art. You actually fell into your first art class quite serendipitously. I understand when you were 12 years old, you only took the weekly Saturday class initially because your friends were taking it and you wanted to hang out with them. So it wasn't something that you had to bug her about because you wanted to pursue this specific discipline. Yeah, I just wanted to play all the time, like all kids do for the most part. It maybe was because I had to go to training school after school during the week. So I felt like I never really had any time to do things that were fun. The drawing class was definitely like a hangout excuse. And gradually over time, my friends either lost interest or their parents decided to kind of introduce them to other activities. And I just kind of stayed. I I don't remember saying anything about wanting to leave or wanting to stay. I think it just kind of remained there and I continued and it never got boring for me. 
Were these the classes that you attended that were taught by Chinese draftsmen who only spoke to you in Chinese? Or was that the school that you were going to that your parents were sending you to? It was the Chinese school drawing class. Um, it was different from like Chinese school academics, uh, which was during the week. And then these, all my art teachers were from uh, Asia and they would speak to me in Mandarin. And it was interesting to also learn art through that because the language translates differently sometimes. And there's some things that I felt like they could explain better through Mandarin than um, in English, of course, because that wasn't their language. But I... I kind of appreciate now in retrospect having that different sort of perspective on how they taught me painting versus how I've learned it through college. And it was nice to have that experience. I understand that the way you learned through your Chinese teachers was more technical than conceptual. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that gave you a, a different perspective than the other kids that were in the more American art classes? I didn't really understand drawing as something that could be anything more than just kind of these Saturday activities, especially when I was younger, because my parents didn't seem to express like, oh, if you keep doing this, you could do work in this and this could be your job or career. I think it was purely recreational for a long time. So learning how to draw technically felt kind of like practicing doing anything well over a period of time, just practicing and exercising these muscles. So I guess I didn't mind the lack of conceptual thinking because it felt very much focused on just trying to be better at something that you weren't good at yet, like anything in school. So I think it didn't really dawn on me until maybe partway through high school when I realized that this was a career. These were There were schools made for these kinds of things. Um, people do this for a living. And then all of a sudden it just became... Probably the interest accelerated a little bit then just because it all kind of clicked in together. And maybe it was simultaneously because I was not the greatest student in school either. So I was like, oh, maybe I have like this escape or uh, an alternate path that I can take instead of having to like force myself to be interested in things that I really, truly just was not interested in. One thing that I discovered in my research was you're saying that it felt good to pretend you had some secret power since you were so <laughs> average at most things and drawing could be yours. I also read that you didn't have a lot of friends in high school. So I'm wondering if if that was really true and, and if drawing sort of became your way of, of communicating with the world. I think that my attitude in high school was one that's probably familiar to other angsty teens, where you kind of feel like it's you against the world. You don't really want to be a part of what everyone else is interested in. I really was interested in kind of similar to like the imaginary worlds that I felt like I lived in when I was a kid. Just like I could make something better for myself, even if it's not entirely real or that other people understand necessarily. I think I was very okay with that kind of, it's not so much isolation as it is like independence because I felt very monitored at home. My parents just like, they just had a very watchful eye over like what I was doing. So in a way, yeah, it was like a freedom. It was kind of liberating to be able to do something that maybe they didn't fully understand or that other people didn't understand. And it was exciting. I, and I, it wasn't that I didn't get along with people in high school. I think what I turned to when I felt like I wanted to express myself was more of like, artistic expression or like drawing and getting my ideas out there, you know, and now I do kind of regret <laughs> like isolating myself that much. 
I think it would be nice to obviously still have connections to that part of my life through people who can, you know, you can share memories with and stuff. And, you know, now you're like, oh, it would have been nice for someone to remember something that maybe I forgot during that time because I don't, I can't, I don't have that perspective so much. So, you know, if there's any high school students listening to this, don't ignore everybody. (laughs) And then there's always Facebook, right? Where the high school Mm -hmm. people seem to always be able to be discovered. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) How did your parents feel about your growing interest in art? Were they supportive of you moving in that direction professionally? I think they started to get a little nervous when I became interested because, like I said, it was something that they didn't fully understand. And they ended up, I think, trying to corral me in directions that were very similar to what their friends' kids were doing, like, or interests or doing well on tests, like things that they could really compare and see progress and understand that. Um, It was hard for them to just accept that somehow this like 16 year old person was going to know what they were going to do for the rest of their life with that sort of attitude. And I do feel like a lot of what they tried to do was not necessarily to discourage me from that, but it was more so they wanted to make sure that it was something that I could really commit to or that I knew what I was getting myself into rather than just, it was a phase or it was, you know, like I felt annoyed a little bit at the time that I felt like I had to fight for this. Um, But in retrospect, it does feel like they did it from a place of concern and care rather than like true discouragement, like that they weren't going to speak to me anymore if I decided to become an artist. So, well, a commercial illustration isn't the easiest career to pick and certainly not the most secure. And it's actually incredibly courageous for anybody to choose a life as an artist. Did you feel at the time you only applied to art schools? Ultimately, you only applied to art schools. You got into all the schools you applied to. You ended up at the Art Center in Pasadena. But did you have a sense that this was really possible, that this this could be a direction in your life that, that could be successful? Or were you just sort of going along with the flow of enjoying what you were doing? I started out trying to trust my instincts the best I could. I really did not know what I was getting myself into. And it was like grabbing onto small bits of things that were familiar. It's like, oh, this is drawing. Oh, this is painting, you know, and trying to understand that in the context of how to make it a career. Uh, definitely through high school, I had no idea what I was doing. I just stumbled across the concept of being an artist for a living. So applying to art schools felt very logical because it felt like that's what people do after high school. You go to college and my parents were not in support of having me take a year off or to experiment to see what it was that I was really interested in. Uh, It always felt like there was this kind of like you were running out of time. Like if you didn't seize every opportunity that you could while you were young, that somehow the age was going to work against you. And so I actually ended up applying only to art colleges because it felt like a compromise between like, okay, I'll do this, but I want to do what I want to do. So 
Yeah, nothing just nothing made sense to me. And I think it was because I was very young. I was 17 years old. Sure. I had no idea. So um, I, and also a lot of my classmates when I was in college, they were older than I was, because a lot of them came from different backgrounds, or they changed careers, and they were very dedicated to like this new trajectory. So for me, I felt like I went from hanging out with a bunch of people my age, 16, 17 year olds. And all of a sudden I was around like 25 to 30 year olds when I was 18. But that really did help me, I guess, understand illustration a little bit faster because I had all these people who had different and more mature life experiences. And I think they tolerated me as like their younger classmate who really just didn't know anything about anything. I was like curious, but you know, it didn't help me very much until later down the road, I think. Early on at school, when hanging up your work for your first critique, she felt that nearly everyone else's work was better. Really? Given how much yes. talent you have? Really? <laughs> yes. I. There's no way that isn't true. It's, it's because they were older. They had better experiences. They had time to practice. They might have even gone to a different art school. I was very intimidated. And I think I... I don't know. There was definitely times when... I just, I probably didn't try very hard because I knew it wasn't going to be very good. And I think I had to learn how to build my own confidence and try and make the most out of the situation I was in because I was around such talented people and it would be sort of foolish to waste that on (laughs) self-pity. And like, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary actually in retrospect. Yeah. You stated that while you were in school, you were constantly apologizing for your work, but it's also where you learned to stop apologizing for your work. How did you learn that? Uh, Well, that's something I think I'm still figuring out. Uh, Oh, me too. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because it was in part, you know, I felt like I was wasting people's time putting up work that wasn't good or didn't, wasn't strong. This was mainly maybe the first two years, two or three years when I was in school. And I just, I just didn't have any confidence. I had no idea what I was doing. Everyone else seemed very much like they did their research. They knew they had references. They had an understanding of like art history and just, just a general perspective that was much more rich than mine. So I think the apologies just came from like, I'm sorry, this isn't my best work. I'm sorry, this is like rushed. I'm sorry, I did this wrong. I didn't have time to do this. I didn't, I didn't do, it was all like things that I could have done or I wanted to do. And it was nothing about like what was actually in front of us. And there was no conversation. I wasn't opening a conversation about what I was trying to do, you know? Um, And I think that I probably wasted a lot of moments and critiques where we could have actually just talked about where things could be better rather than like, okay, imagine this situation around my work. Um, I think people were all there to learn and it took me a while to realize that and growing from that really did help to kind of move past and therefore figure out how to become like this illustrator, which was what everyone was there for really. Was there a time in college where you felt equal to your peers or where you began to understand your perspective and your talent or did that come later? I think it's hard to say only because with being young, it it always just kind of felt like I was playing catch up and it's hard to know if you're seen equally because somehow I always feel like everyone's like little sister or like, you know, trying to fit in with everybody else. 
I don't know. And it, and that could still be something that I'm working on now to try and make sure that I like respect my own work and make sure that I could stand up for it and what it's valued at. But I, I would hope that people saw me as an equal as just because it's so isolating on its own anyway. So, um, hard to say. <laughs> Do you think that that sense of yourself fueled your ambition? I think so, because it, I kind of felt like that underdog in a way, maybe. No one knew who I was, and I could just come out of anywhere. I could go in any direction. I didn't I didn't have a style already or anything like that. Um, so in that way, it made me pretty excited to think like, well, I could, I could try other things or I can figure things out along the way while I'm here. But I, you know, I think there's a natural competition that you experience when you see a lot of very talented people and you can't help but just either want to like follow the the drift that's behind them just to kind of keep up with them because it was inspiring it was great to be around people like that I think a lot of my really close friends are from that time in my life and the age range spans between like people who were the same age as me versus you know people who were like married with children already and it was it was cool to be able to have that um, during that time. Talk about the op-ed class you attended with Brian Ray, the former art director at the New York Times and the current Modern Love column illustrator and your professor at the time, Paul Rogers. They are great. They have helped me so much when I was in school. And those are memorable turning points for me because I was meandering a lot <laughs> during my college years where I, I just wasn't sure, you know, you see someone do something great and you want to try and go in that direction. And then you kind of lose sense of what you're actually interested in. So I think by the time I took that class, I think it was a combination of Brian and Paul being my instructors, but it was also my other classmate, Owen Freeman, who was uh, their TA. That class really did help explain illustration in a way that no other class had really explained to me before, which was, oh, here's something that I'm familiar with, which is like media newspapers and things that you can see on a daily basis. Here's art within it. And here's a very broken down way of making art in order to do this. Like one plus one equals two, this could possibly be your career or at least an entryway into one. So I felt like that was where a lot of things started making sense. It was like, oh, here's an article and there's so many articles in this world that need art accompanied with it, just like books need like covers, just like posters need information. There's all this these applications. So it was very much like a real world experience type of class. And it was thrilling to be like, oh, I don't know if I have one day to do this or if I have one week to do this and maybe I have to limit my ideas. It was this kind of speedy, fun boot camp that I had multiple opportunities to try different things within that context. And it was very fun. And it was, it was very nice to be able to believe that it was real as well. The class was based around the op-ed page in the New York times. And from what I understand, when you're working for the op-ed page, it's an assignment that you have to come up with an idea in two hours, draw it, explain it, and I think, to quote you, not lose your head in the process. <laughs> so, I mean, whenever I talk to anybody that's done work for the op-ed pages, whether it's Paul Sayer or Brian, I'm just astounded that it's actually possible 
to do something like that, to get an assignment, be told what it is you have to create an illustration for, come up with a range of ideas, come up with a kick-ass idea, sketch it, draw it, file it. Two hours? Really? Two hours. It can be quite quick. And I, I do think that the exciting part was when I was able to make a piece that was based on just something that everyone got it at the same time, you know, like we were all illustrating the same articles for class and it actually was a nice confidence builder because it felt like we were all kind of starting in the same place. It was almost like this kind of pop quiz, like where are you and how do you see things, right? So right. it was nice because I felt like I could keep up. I felt like I had ideas that were able to make sense in this context. And I didn't necessarily have to be like this expert or lived very many years. I was, you know, we're reading this information and what we're gleaning from it is just how we're understanding the words and the context and building a scenario from that. So it was a mix of, of course, your own understanding and knowledge of things, what kind of metaphors you could bring in. And I think it, it was nice because it was validating for the very few experiences that I did have. And also things about, you know, having grown up with like Chinese parents, Chinese immigrant parents, like other life experiences like that, all of a sudden started coming in where it was like language or the way that I saw things or things that I learned from my painting teachers who spoke to me in Chinese and metaphors in Chinese that made sense language wise, you know, sometimes there's very strange juxtapositions and it's not talking about the thing that it's explaining, but it's used in a way to explain a bigger situation. And I, I feel like a lot of this kind of like cut and paste and kind of collaging of what I had already on hand was what I had as a toolkit for any of this like this type of work is just that. So it was validating and it was confidence building. It was fun and exciting. So yeah. And I think the time limit thing was actually a positive as well, because I think I would struggle with long-term projects. If I had a week to do it, I'd wait until the last day to do it, you know, and all of a sudden you're here under this time crunch where two hours was all you had. So there was no time to really let your mind wander. You just had to kind of pour out the things that you could think about at that moment and try and make the best of it. You know, like I think the practice of that was also using different muscles and it was, it was very cool to, to be able to do that. It, it feels very mysterious because it's not <laughs> even about, I mean, of course it's about being able to draw and technique and style and so forth. But I think the best illustrations in the op-ed pages are the ones that surprise you in connecting ideas. And it always amazes me when I see things from people like Christoph Niemann, who can create an entire language, an entire story within a stroke. It feels so um, completely foreign to me. Like it's a, It really is a very different language that somehow when spoken by great illustrators, becomes universal. Yeah, I think it's something that I've also learned over time and found to make the most sense to me is what is something that we can all relate to? We're trying to communicate. It's I know it's the commercial arts, but it's really communication arts. So the baseline is that you want people to understand what you're making. You want people to be able to solve your visual 
to solve the image for themselves so that they can see and make sure that it makes sense to them. A lot of like the reason I love Christoph Neiman's work for that reason, because he uses things that are so ordinary and everyday that people are familiar with. And he's able to kind of distort them and push them into these new realms and kind of create secondary worlds. And all of a sudden you just kind of wonder like, how come I couldn't have thought of that? You know, this way of trying to connect with other people and not have them feel like you're explaining it to death for them, but giving them an opportunity to also use what they know in order to understand what you're saying. And I think that middle ground is a good place to be. Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It's the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. In the Making takes an honest look at the challenges and rewards of being part of the creator economy. The series kicks off with Puno, who is a creative director and educator. On the show, host Teresa Au explores how you can use the principles of design to create a career you love. Puno did it. Puno is a web designer and content creator and the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building. Most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative, intriguing people who are making a living and it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. In 2009, during your final months of college, you visited New York City to gather some firsthand illustrator experience by bringing your portfolio around and knocking on doors. And Brian Ray had given you the contact information for Leanne Shapton, the great, great Leanne Shapton, who at the time was the art director of the op-ed section. She's also an extraordinary illustrator. And she agreed to meet with you. Talk about that meeting and then what happened subsequently. I was so lucky that she was willing to meet me. I was so grateful to Brian for giving me the contacts that he had. This was a time before having an iPhone or iPads and all that. So bringing the physical portfolio felt like it still made a lot of sense. And I work in painting. So all this stuff was like in a classic portfolio. It was like, I look like clip art going to like tote my portfolio around. Old school, old (laughs) school. (laughs) But I, I did what Brian suggested. I 
I wrote emails. I trusted him and she wrote back to me and she was very generous with her time and said that I could come by the New York times office and show her some work and actually going to the times building felt. So it was like, a pilgrimage in itself. Oh, yeah. you feel I, I feel like. that way too. Every time I visit, I feel the exact same way, no matter how many yeah. times I've been there. It's like Mecca. Exactly. And she looked as she was earnestly interested in my work. We talked about it. I explained what the projects were, you know, showed her some of the stuff I did in Brian and Paul's class. And it was very overwhelming. <laughs> anyway, so I, I did end up just going home. I think I was leaving New York in like a couple of days. And Leanne emailed me, I think, two days before I left and offered me a job, which was just, I mean, everyone remembers their first job. So I was, I didn't, I don't even know if I really read everything that she was asking me to do. I just saw like, would you like to? And then by this day and just like skimmed that email was like, yes, 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 please. Yes. And it was for the now non-existent op-ed letters page. It was just like this tiny little stamp-sized image that was uh, a response to people's letters that they had written in. And I think my article was about the difference between reading out loud versus like reading in your head or something like that. And so at the time I was very invested in drawing animals and using animals as like this kind of connective tissue between articles and like art. So I also learned that that's not necessarily the most functional way to make illustrations because they don't always translate uh, as far as visuals go. You can't just like put like a bird in just because the articles like has nothing to do with birds and you just want to use a bird character. It's most, sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. So in this case, I, I remember sending her a bunch of little sketches and one of them was like this elephant, like reading out loud to like a, I don't know, like a, another little group of elephants or something, which like an image that's going to be like two by one inch, like where could you even draw a crowd? It was very, I wasn't thinking at all about like what the dimensions were, like how much detail would be rendered. I was just too excited at the time. She said that they were all really cute and nice, but that like having an elephant reading could be misinterpreted as something that was like about Republican politics or, you know, just things that I had never thought about and would not have been thinking about. So it was really great to have someone who was able to kind of explain to me for the first time that not everything can be used to say everything. So, you know, I immediately changed all of that to humans instead, because, you know, on another level, like animals don't read, they had nothing to do with reading. So um, I ended up making it a scene in the subway because I felt like maybe just as an homage to my New York visit that it would be nice to kind of use the subway as a location where people were constantly reading to themselves but in this case were reading out loud to each other or something like that so that was the end of my first job and I felt very much like is this possible? Like it it actually felt possible for the first time because that whole thing wasn't an actual disaster so um, what did your parents think when they saw your first published piece in all things, the New York Times? They were pretty much like, oh, it is real. Like this job is real. Uh, and it helped confirm a few things for them. And my mom bought the paper. She also um, 
like when I finally did get paid for that job, she like made a fake jumbo check and like laminated it for me, which was very sweet. So it was, it was nice. (laughs) You've stated that there are a lot of similar habits and procedures that you've learned from your work with the New York Times that you follow in your other editorial assignments. And I'm wondering if you can share what some of those are. It's a lot of the same sort of problem solving. There's always some context for the illustration. There's always going to be dimensional Uh, restrictions. There's always going to be things that the art director wants. And I think the, the process in making an editorial piece varies, of course, based on whatever the article may be. But I, I try to use each of those opportunities to explore like things that I'm interested in or techniques or colors or any, like these tiny opportunities so that my work doesn't all end up looking the same again and again. But the way that I figure out what I want to make oftentimes involves like a lot of writing and note taking in the beginning, just kind of almost word dumping and really rough thumbnail sketching just in order to not continue to think about those things as I'm trying to think of ideas on top of that. So I... I make a lot of lists. I do preliminary sketches. I kind of try and figure out what the color language could be for each of these assignments because I feel like half the information is just the emotional connection with the colors themselves and those combinations and how that translates. So I also try and gauge how art directors and um, clients are as far as like what they're looking for, what they reference when they um, are hiring me to do something. Is it something that I've done before? Is it um, something entirely new? Do I have an opportunity to kind of push my ideas a little bit more into like an abstract realm or should we stay more literal? Can we use animals again? Can we go back to people? Like it's, it's a little bit of just feeling it out as much as you can through like an email. (laughs) So you graduated shortly after your first published piece in the New York Times, and you've been a freelance illustrator ever since. In that time, you've worked with some of the biggest and most prestigious clients and brands in the world. The New Yorker, Google, Delta, Coca-Cola, Patagonia, Pentagram, Warby Parker, Reebok, and so many more. That's just a real short list, as well as illustrating books, and we'll talk about that in a bit. How do you get your clients? Do you pursue them? Do they come to you? Is it a combination of both? I started my career with an agent and I did that because I thought maybe that was the answer to how to get these clients that don't know who I am yet. And I don't know if she was my silver bullet in any way. I think I learned a lot about that experience just as how maybe how I wanted to run my business more so than who the clients necessarily should be. Um, It's always hard to answer this question only because most of the time you never really know how someone saw your work. It could be something in the times. It could be someone else mentioned your work. It could be so many things. So I was fortunate enough to, start my career in the early waves of social media. And it was the time when things were still quite pure and people were very interested in other people and seeing how these things work. So I was using Instagram for taking photos of my food and nonsense things. And 
eventually I was just kind of taking photos of snapshots of drawings that I was making. I was lucky because people started just following me or they would leave comments. I would see their work. We started building these like small little friendship groups on social media. And I imagined that that had something to do with exposing my work to different groups of people early on. But I do think like the editorial realm, like when I did do a few um, New York Times pieces, like maybe two or three New York Times pieces later, people were kind of reaching out more consistently than they were in the past. And I think there was definitely a combination of like luck and taking jobs that were at least had like a wide and big readership. And I also think it's great to have help from your peers, you know, like we've pooled art director names before just so that we can all get a chance at sending things out to be able to um, hopefully get a chance at, having them see your work and maybe if not now, then maybe months from now they'll think of you for something. And that's just the hope. So the consistency and, in, in staying on the radar has definitely been something that's helped me. Jessica Hish, the great uh, illustrator and lettering artist recently did a workshop on pricing, which it seems like every designer in the world wanted and needed and tried to take how have you learned about pricing your work? Can you talk a little bit about for the young designers and illustrators out there that are seeing you as a role model? How do you know how much to charge someone? I actually used Jessica's pricing back when she wrote the article for Fast Company. And I thought it was really helpful because there was really no other information out there like that. And since then, I think she's made an updated version, which is great. Um, but a lot of the pricing comes from just the budgets that are already existing. I, I find that editorial pricing stays very much within the same realm, like between a few hundred dollars to a few thousand, depending on the size of the piece. And I also think most of the time clients already have a number that they're coming to you with. But if they don't, a lot of the times I refer back to a job that's similar to that, or I consider what they're going to be using it for. I consider if I'm ever going to see it again, if I can ever have ownership over it again. And all those things are measurements of not just your work, but the future work that you could do. And also the past work that you've done, it's a reflection of your personal value as an artist, which I think a lot of the times we devalue or it's hard to stand behind how much you think you're worth. So there's a lot of benefit in talking to other illustrators and hopefully friends or peers who are open about those conversations there's a great website called lightbox.info uh, that is a crowdsourced website where illustrators have contributed their information on what they've made for certain jobs. And it's, you know, who the client was, did they pay on time, what were the asks, so on and so forth. And it's a great way for people to at least see what other people have at least made. So if you don't have an immediate community of illustrators, it's nice to be able to go on there and have a reference point for any of that. So talk about your process for creating your illustrations. Do you still work primarily with gouache? 
These days I've actually been working a lot digitally um, for different projects, which is nice, but the feeling of painting with paint is never going to be replaceable for me. Um, I work on paper and I keep it as simple as possible, really. <laughs> I, I have a drawer of paints and I use a pencil to kind of put in my line work after I've sketched out an idea on the computer, printing out the Xerox like line drawing and then using a light pad to trace it on to uh, the paper that I use. I've also over time have realized it's been easier for me to kind of do a color sketch on the computer with digital colors because I don't want to be making those decisions while I'm painting. And it's saved me a lot of redos actually as well. So um, I also have scanned in all the swatches of the paints that I have in order to kind of make sure the digital colors that I'm using in my sketches are the same as the ones that I can actually reproduce in person. So a lot of fluorescent colors are really great in the computer, but they just don't really exist in real life. So I want to try and create as realistic of a roadmap for myself as possible. And then when I move on to painting the actual thing, it's almost like that's when the actual act of just like making the piece come together, it feels nice. It's almost like cooking a recipe that you're just really familiar with and you're just like able to enjoy that process um yeah there's a real ease to it yeah yeah I I, I love that you said that working with gouache means that you're taking tiny risks every time the paint touches the paper yeah it's a finicky material and over the last few years I've switched from using water-based gouache to acrylic gouache because the water-based gouache is very sensitive and you can't really layer it very easily. If I sneezed on it, it would just disappear. Like it would just become a different thing. And it's also the act of painting, I think with something that you can't really erase is it's different from oil painting where you can like scrape it off and redo it. But with gouache, it you see all the evidence there. And I think part of the painting process for me and maybe the reason why there's like a lot of fluidity and movement is because oftentimes those gestures are natural gestures. They're the textures of the brush. They're the movement of my actual hand going across the paper. And sometimes things don't (laughs) end up being the way you want. So you either have to calculate those risks or you have to find a way to make them look intentional. (laughs) And that is part of the fun as well. Your most recent book was illustrating Maria Popova's latest effort, the children's picture book, The Snail with the Right Heart. Congratulations on such a spectacular result. Thank you. Yeah, that was a wonderful project to work on with Maria and with Enchanted Lion. The Snail with the Right Heart is based on a real scientific event, and it's a story about science, the poetry of existence. It's about time and chance, genetics and gender, love and death, evolution and infinity. Um, Just a couple of, you know, light topics. (laughs) Um, Concepts made real in the concrete, finite life of one tiny, unusual little snail named Jeremy, who is discovered living in a pile of compost in an English garden. Can you share what happens in the story next? So Jeremy gets discovered on a little pile of dirt, and I think he ends up resembling and representing this idea that 
nature and life is something that can flower into many different things and maybe not when you expect it to and sometimes not in your lifetime. I don't want to spoil the book too much, but it was really wonderful working on a story that had so much so much life and so much time and so many little moments that felt very relatable and other things that were so abstract that you can only really imagine what those situations were, like the beginning of time. <laughs> right. Well, what's interesting about Jeremy is that his heart is on the right side of his little body as opposed to the left. And I think that emerging from this wonderfully singular snail's life, because it's about like one in a zillion chances that this could happen to a snail or a person, is is a real invitation not to mistake difference for defect. I think that's one of the underlying themes of the book that I love so much, and to really welcome diversity in every life, no, no matter how big or small. Did the subject of the book influence the style of your paintings or the way in which you approached doing the artwork? Yeah, it definitely influenced it in the sense that I wanted to be able to capture the moments of the dinosaurs on earth versus, you know, being able to see the process of snails mating uh, all the way to like the future and beyond. And so I think I treated a lot of the paintings with a more watercolor treatments rather than very opaque laydowns of paint. Um, It was a combination of really letting the paint kind of bleed in moments, just letting the natural elements of that kind of expose itself rather than trying to contain everything and make it very perfect. And there's there's a little bit of both. And it was nice because I hope that that at least lends itself to the kind of randomness that is also our life and these mutations and things. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I like so much about the book and the illustrations and the just story in general is how it can be related to on so many levels. It's a wonderful children's picture book, but it's also a very universal story about life and what it means to be different and what it means to love. And that's a rare thing to be able to do, especially in a slim little book. So congratulations. (laughs) It's, It's quite an amazing accomplishment. Thank you. Ping, I have two last questions for you. My first one is this. Not too long ago, you went back into your live journal account and found an entry that you wrote when you were about 15 or 16 that stated, I'm going to be an illustrator. So you stated it (laughs) way back when, that day. How did you feel reading that entry so many years later and seeing how you manifested your reality? I think I wrote that when I got accepted to college. And maybe it was just a declaration of my major. (laughs) But (laughs) it's actually a very pleasant thing to hear because I don't oftentimes get to tap into past me. And I guess in a way I'm thankful for past me's determination and almost blind ambition in wanting to try this as a life because I don't know what else I would have done. I feel very fortunate that I've been able to, it's certainly not a career that I was able to do by myself. Um, 
I had a lot of support and help along the way. I hope to also continue to help others who are interested in doing this as a life and as a career. My last question is this. When you won the Art Directors Club Young Guns Award, you were asked to finish the sentence, despite what you might think, illustration is not blank. You finished the sentence by stating that illustration is not about illustration. So my last question is, what do you think it's really about? I... (laughs) Illustration at the end of the day is a job, and I feel that these past few years, I've really tried to distinguish the difference between what a job is and what my life is. So much of my early years were focused on dedicating my life to illustration rather than trying to set certain boundaries in order to maintain a level of balance in my life. And I wanted to be able to continue to be my career and something that I can use as a tool to keep myself alive and also make work that's interesting and communicates and hopefully inspires people. I guess it's, it's a little complicated these days, but I, I hope to shift the scales a little bit on the things that are in my life to, in order for this to continue being part of it and also for other parts of my life to also have opportunities to grow. Can you talk a little bit about why it's become complicated? Yeah, I think the fact that I've used a lot of my own experiences, a lot of my own thoughts and ideas to make work better or make work good comes at the expense of my own energy and maybe instead of being able to work on a project or something that would be fulfilling for myself, it's then spent on something that's for someone else. So it's kind of like finding your personal boundaries between your professional life and your personal life. Yeah. Well, I really, really look forward to seeing where you go next. And I can only imagine that it'll be wonderful. Thank you. That's, that means a lot. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and giving me this chance to hopefully share a little bit about myself. Absolutely. Ping, thank you so much. Thank you for making such beautiful work and being so open about the way that you work. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. I really, truly look forward to seeing the great work you make next. Thanks. You can see a lot of Ping Zhu's work at pingzoo.com. That's P-I-N-G-S-Z-O-O.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.